Many objects present a fair appearance when viewed at a distance, but their defects become apparent when examined at close quarters. So it is here. The assertion that God's design in sending his Son to this earth was that every sinner might be saved by him may at first glance seem to conduce into the magnifying of his goodness and grace, but a little reflection thereon should quickly show the contrary. It certainly is not to the glory of God to suppose that the sex success of Christ's costly undertaking should be left contingent on the creature's will. That can never be the measure of his honor, and it certainly is not to the glory of God to suppose that he designed to save any that perish, for that would show his benevolent purpose was frustrated and would proclaim a disappointed and defeated deity. The truth is that the glory of God's grace consists not in the number of objects to whom it was shown, but in its being free and undeserved, thus tending to lay the highest of all obligations on those who are concerned therein. The fact is that those who advocate the scheme of a general redemption are so far from magnifying the grace of God that they really degrade both divine grace and Christ's sacrifice. For according to their theory, God has only provided a vicarious salvation which is offered to the caprice of man's acceptance, a mere possibility which can only become actual through the sinner's compliance with certain conditions, a possibility which, when properly examined, is seen to be an impossibility. How vast the difference between a precarious salvation and an infallible one. How immeasurably superior a redemption which secures the certain salvation of everyone for whom it was made and a suppositionary redemption which guarantees the salvation of none, leaving everything uncertain, dependent upon fickle man. How infinitely greater the glory which comes to God by that plan, through which grace efficaciously works in and applies the saving benefits to all for whom Christ died, than a method which would exalt the power of the creature and set the crown upon his free will. If it be still contended that we magnify the grace of God far more by proclaiming its universality than, rather than by insisting upon its particularity, by affirming that it extends to all mankind rather than to an elect remnant, then to carry out such an argument to its logical conclusion, we should be obliged to believe that God will save all, for he certainly will do that which is for his highest glory, this being the paramount consideration before him in all that he does. See Psalms 29.9, Proverbs 16.4, Revelation 4.11. Moreover, such an argument would require, yea, demand that divine grace would be extended unto the fallen angels as well as to all mankind. Will man pretend to reflect on God's goodness because he has not extended his grace to all who might have been the objects of it, had he so pleased? Has he not a right to do what he wills with his own? which exalts Christ the more, the de which demonstrates the more value and efficacy of his atonement, that which effectually secures the actual salvation of everyone for whom it was made, or that which ends in the great majority for those for whom he shed his precious blood, being eternally punished in hell. Surely none with any spiritual discernment can fail to see which view is more glorifying to the Redeemer. And if we call to mind the nature of his satisfaction, that it was a specific bearing of the sins of definite persons, that it was a paying of their debts, a suffering of the law's curse in their stead in order that they might go free, and when we remember that the judge of all accepted this atonement, was satisfied with the price the sponsor paid, then where would God's honor, his justice, his faithfulness, were he notwithstanding to yet punish millions of those for whom his son bled and died? If Christ died for all men universally, then all men universally must be saved. 
there is not another possible alternative except to say that God will punish twice, first the person of the surety and then in the person of many in whose places he's supposed to have stood. We sincerely trust that neither writer nor reader is lacking in compassion to his fellow creatures, yet we must not allow our pity for men to lead us to adopt any principle which is dishonoring to the divine perfections and subversive of Christ's satisfactions. Others may speak for themselves, but the writer would not dare to trust his salvation to a Savior who was unable to save those for whom he died. If it were true that Christ shed his blood for those who are now in hell, what guarantee would be left me that I should not go there? An atonement that fails to atone, a sacrifice which fails to deliver, is worthless. To say that salvation is possible to all if all would receive Christ is to ignore those unequivocal words of the Savior in John 6.44, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. To say that salvation turns upon the sinner's own acceptance of Christ would be like offering a sum of money to a blind man upon the condition that he would see, or offering to ransom a prisoner on the proviso that he burst his way out of his steel-walled cell. Many divines say that Christ did something when he died that enabled God to be just and yet the justifier of the ungodly. What that something is they do not tell us. They believe in an atonement made for everybody. But then their atonement is just this, that Judas was atoned for as much as Peter, that the damned in hell were as much an object of Jesus Christ's satisfaction as the saved in heaven. Though they do not say it in proper words, they must mean that, in the case of multitudes, Christ died in vain, for they say he died for all, and yet so ineffectual was he dying for them that many are damned afterwards. Now such an atonement I despise, I reject it. I had rather believe a limited atonement that is efficacious for all for whom it was intended than a universal atonement that is not efficacious for anybody except the will of man be joined with it. Why, my brethren, if we were only so far atoned for by the death of Christ that any one of us might afterward save himself, Christ's atonement were not worth a farthing. For there is no man of us can save himself, no, not under the gospel. C.H. Spurgeon on Isaiah 53.10 but is not a true believing on the Lord Jesus Christ required in order to receive a receiving of God's great salvation? Certainly it is, but it is the office of the Holy Spirit to give saving faith to every one of those for whom whose sins Christ atoned. There is an infallible connection and sure between the one and the other. The costly price of redemption was far too precious in the sight of God for it to be cast away on souls that perish. Therefore did he predestinate that the Spirit should communicate life to all for whom Christ died, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification, Romans 4.25, that is clear enough, all whose offenses Christ bore must be justified. There are inseparable and saving benefits bestowed upon all them whom Christ loved and gave himself for. But if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life, Romans 5.10. These go together. Hence, as the greater part of man are not saved by his life, that is proof positive that they were not reconciled by his death. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith, Galatians 3.13.14. To each of those whom he redeemed, Christ gives his Spirit, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made righteousness of God in him, 2 Colossians 5.21. As inevitably as Christ was made sin for those for whom he died, 
so inevitably must those for whom he was made sin be made righteousness of God in him. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Romans 8.32 If God delivered up Christ for all mankind, then he will, he must, to make good his word here, freely bestow, parenthesis, not offer, but actually give, repentance, faith, and every spiritual blessing to all mankind. It is this sure and certain connection between Christ's purchase of salvation and the actual enjoyment thereof by those for whom it was wrought, which the advocates of universal redemption lose sight of. Hear that prince of the Puritans, John Owen. Redemption is the freeing of a man from misery by the intervention of a ransom. Now, when a ransom is paid for the liberty of a prisoner, does not justice demand that he should have and enjoy the liberty so purchased for him by a valuable consideration? If I should pay a thousand pounds for a man's deliverance from bondage to him that detains him, who hath power to set him free and is contended with the price I gave, were it not injurious to me and the poor prisoner that his deliverance be not accomplished, can it possibly be conceived that there should be a redemption of men and those men not redeemed, that a price should be paid and the purchase not consummated? Yet all this must be made true and innumerable other absurdities if universal redemption be asserted. A price would be paid for all, yet few delivered. The redemption of all consummated, yet few of them redeemed. The judge satisfied, the jailer conquered, and yet the prisoners enthralled. The difference, then, between truth and error on this vital subject lies in the returning of the scriptural answers to these questions. What was the purpose of God in the mission of Christ? Was it to make the salvation of all Adam's race possible, or was it to make the salvation of his own people certain? Was it simply to remove those obstacles which stood in the way of the divine righteousness pardoning anyone, or was it to remove the sins of those whom God had predestinated unto eternal glory? Was it simply to open a way whereby sinners may approach unto the Holy One, or did Christ die the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God? 1 Peter 3.18 That the second of each of these alternatives is the true one, consider, number one, the purchase of Christ. By the term purchase, Scripture signifies that Christ meritoriously procured for his people the actual bestowment upon them of all those good things which he earned for them which may be summed up under life, salvation, and an eternal inheritance. Now these blessings were not purchased for his people conditionally, but absolutely, just as when a surety pays a debt, the debtor is necessarily discharged, or as when a ransom is given for the redeeming of a captive, the captive must be freed. Christ's work was not of such a nature that the will of God is still conditional as to whether or not the reward of his satisfaction should be bestowed, bestowed upon certain ones. No, he has absolutely obtained for his people peace with God and the remission of their sins, and that by purchasing for them that very faith with which they believe, appropriate and enjoy the salvation which he wrought out for them. Scripture is most explicit in demonstrating that Christ's purchase and the Spirit's application of the purchased blessings have for their object the same individuals, that for whomsoever Christ obtained any spiritual blessing by his death, unto them it shall most certainly be communicated. For whomsoever he wrought reconciliation with God, in them doth he, parenthesis, by his Spirit, work reconciliation unto God. The one is not extended to any to whom the other does not reach. It is true that no sinner obtains any of the saving benefits of Christ's satisfaction until he repents and believes, 
but it is equally true that Christ has purchased these very graces for his people and is now exalted on high to administer them. Acts 5.31 and so forth. The scripture perpetually co-joined together the benefits purchased by Christ and the benefits bestowed on those for whom they were purchased so that we cannot sever the one from the other. A chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed, Isaiah 53.5. His chastisement and our peace, his wording and our healing, are inseparably associated. Thus the design of Christ's satisfaction is infallibly made known by the results of it. The intendment of God in the atonement is plainly evident through what is accomplished by it, for whatsoever he has purposed must be effected, Isaiah 46.10, hence what is secured by the sacrifice of Christ makes manifest what God planned it should procure. If there be anything plainly taught in Scripture, it is that the sacrifice of Christ was made for those only who shall eventually be saved by it. If the wisdom of men cannot reconcile this and their views of what is right, then let them be prepared to dispute the matter with the Almighty in the Day of Judgment. Alex Carson Number 2. The Reditude of the Divine Character God's justice indispensably requires that all the benefits of Christ's sacrifices should be imputed and imparted to every one for whom it was offered and accepted. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right he is he. The supreme being gives to everyone his due. This principle cannot be violated in a single instance. He cannot, according to this, either remit sin without satisfaction or punish sin where satisfaction for it has been received. The one is as inconsistent with perfect equity as the other. If the punishment for sin has been borne, the remission of the offense follows, of course. The principles of retitude suppose this, nay, preemptorily demand it. Justice could not be satisfied without it. Agreeably to this, it follows that the death of Christ being a legal satisfaction for sin all for whom he died must enjoy the remission of their offenses. It is as much at variance with strict justice or equity that any for whom Christ has given satisfaction should continue under condemnation as that they should have been delivered from guilt without satisfaction being given for them at all. But it is admitted that all are not delivered from the punishment of sin, that there are many who perish in final condemnation. We are therefore compelled to infer that for such no satisfaction has been given to the claims of infinite justice, no atonement has been made. If this is denied, the monstrous impossibilities must be maintained that the infallible judge refuses to remit the punishment of some for whose offenses he has received a full compensation, that he finally condemns a son, the price of whose deliverance from condemnation has been paid to him, that with regard to the sins of some mankind he seeks satisfaction in their personal punishment after having obtained satisfaction for them in the sufferings of Christ, that is to say that an infinitely righteous God takes double payment for the same debt, double satisfaction for the same offense, first from the surety and then from those who, for whom the surety stood. It is needless to add that these conclusions are revolting to every right feeling of the equity and must be totally inaccurate to the procedure of him who loveth righteousness and hateth wickedness. W. Symington Christ made full satisfaction unto the law of God, Matthew 5.17, Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But how could he have made satisfaction for the sins of those on whom the law will take satisfaction forever? 
How can the justice of God have been appeased in the case of those against whom its flaming sword will awake to all eternity? Christ expiated offenses, Romans 4.25, but how can those offenses for which the guilty perpetrators shall suffer endlessly have been expiated? How did Christ redeem from the curse of the law, Galatians 3.13, those who are to be kept in everlasting thraldom and misery? This scheme postulates a savior of those who are never saved, a redeemer of those who are never redeemed, a deliverer of millions who are never delivered. To reply to the above by saying that Christ made a sufficient atonement for the sins of all men universally, but that many are not saved by it because they trust not in it, is to lose sight of the fact that half of the human race had never heard the gospel and so could not believe in it. Whatever blame may rest upon Christians for their dilatoriness and selfishness, the Holy Spirit would most certainly have stirred up some to carry the glad tidings to those who have perished in heathen darkness had Christ purchased their salvation. To say otherwise would be rank blasphemy. A special mission of the Spirit is to apply the saving benefits of Christ's salvation to all for whom it was made. The one who is able to rise up children out of stones, Matthew 3.9, cannot be checkmated by the cold-heartedness of his people. The Declarations of Holy Writ Number 3 as we have seen in previous chapters, the satisfaction of Christ had its origin in the sovereign will of God, hence his mere good pleasure decided and determined who should be saved by it. A favored section of Adam's race were chosen to be its beneficiaries. Herein we behold the goodness of God. Fallen angels and the remainder of Adam's family were not to be redeemed by it, but were predestinated to suffer the due reward for their iniquity. Therein we behold the severity of God. Romans 11.22 the same contrastive principles are adumbrated in the material creation. Nature no more than Scripture knows anything of a God who is mighty to save and yet not mighty also to destroy, witness tidal waves, tornadoes, earthquakes, famines, and pestilences. In keeping with what has just been said, we find that Scripture divides mankind into two classes, the church and the world, the friends of God and his enemies, the sheep and the goats. And let it be properly noted that whatever is affirmed distinctly of the one class is implicitly denied of the other. Every assertion that Christ died for his people is a repudiation of the theory that he died for all mankind. Just as when it is said that a certain man toils to provide food for his family, no one is foolish enough to conclude that he is also laboring to provide food for all mankind. So when the world declares that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, Ephesians 5.25, all should see that such discriminative language is meaningless if he also loved and gave himself for the entire human race. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out demons, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Matthew 7:21-23. Here a broad line of distinction is drawn between two classes of the human family with respect to one of which the Savior makes a solemn affirmation, I never knew you. The import of those words, according to scripture usage, is too plain to be misunderstood. The antithetical the Lord knoweth them that are his, Second Timothy 2.19, shows that he never had a saving cognizance of those to whom he shall say, Depart from me. Our Lord, speaking of those for whom he died, calls them sheep 
I lay down my life for the sheep, John 10:15. He explains who his sheep are by saying that they are such persons as hear his voice and follow him, verses 3 and 4. And he adds, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Does it not plainly follow from his words that those for whom he died shall be saved, and that he died for none but those upon whom the gift of faith shall be bestowed? And does he not signify by particularizing them as the persons for whom he laid down his life that he did not die for others of an opposite character? If he died for all, there would be no meaning in saying that he died for his sheep, because in the case there would be nothing peculiar to them, nothing by which they were distinguished from any other description of men. John Dick, 1850. To this we may add, the name sheep is synonymous with elect. For such are sheep before they believe, yea, before they are born. See John 10:16, And that in this very same passage, Christ affirmed that there were some who are not his sheep. See 10:26. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. John 6:37. But this would not be true if the enmity of the carnal mind, the stubbornness of unrenewed will, or the oppositions of Satan were able successfully to resist the drawing. John 6:44 of the Father. Christ expressively said, I pray not for the world, John 17:9. Therefore he died not for the world, for his sacrifice and his intercession had the same objects, Romans 8:34. Feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood, Acts 20:28. 20, if the atonement be of universal extent, if Christ's blood be shed for all, then such discriminated language would not only be unnecessary but altogether misleading. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many, Matthew 20:28. 20, no satisfactory reason can be given why Christ should say only many, if all mankind were also included. See Hebrew 9:28. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works, Titus 2:14. Those for whom Christ died are a peculiar people and not the whole Adamic race indiscriminately. Those passages which are appealed to by those who advocate the doctrine of universal redemption will be carefully considered in the next chapter. Chapter 20, The Atonement, Its Extent Concluded That aspect of our subject which is now before us has been a vexing question among theologians, especially so during the last century, for Christ's death for God's people only was never denied till the basic truth of election was rejected, and that rejection only became common about 150 years ago. Were it not so vitally important that we should be quite clear about this branch of our theme, we should avoid the discussion of it as too controversial. But inasmuch as the extent of the atonement depends upon its nature and directly concerns the honor of God and the glory of His Son, we feel called upon to give our best attention to the same. In our last chapter, we endeavored to present some of the evidences which prove that the atonement of Christ was a real one, a definite one, an efficacious one, that whatsoever it was designed to effect must be accomplished. Appeal, too, was made to some of those scriptures which expressively make known for whom Christ died, namely his church, his people, the sheep. Yet clear and plain, full and frequent are as are the declarations of Holy Writ concerning the purpose and design of God in the death of Christ, so that he who runs ought to be able to read, yet scarcely any truth of Scripture is now more frequently called into question than is this one. 
A theory diametrically opposed thereto has been advanced by the enemies of the truth, and sad to say is now being promulgated by many who imagine they are the friends of Christ. As to whether or not they are, God alone can infallibly determine. On practically every side where there is any pretense of honoring Christ today, it is taught that the love of God extends to all mankind, that Christ gave himself a ransom for the whole human race, and that the Holy Spirit is now seeking to woo and win every sinner to him. So uniform has this preaching become, so fervently has it been advocated, so widely has it been accepted, that for anyone to affirm the contrary is to be looked upon as a setter forth of novelties, and for him to press the same is to invite his being denounced as a narrow-minded and harsh-hearted bigot, a heretic of the worst sort. Yet such a one can always console himself with, Yet if I please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Galatians 1.10 Ere we turn and examine those passages which are appealed to by those who proclaim a universal redemption, three things should be carefully considered. First, since all of Adam's race are not pardoned and saved and never will be, then Christ cannot have made an atonement for their sins. This was shown at length in our last chapter. Second, the Holy Scripture cannot contradict themselves. Being the inspired word of God, there cannot be any inconsistencies in them. They cannot teach that Christ died for God's elect only and also affirm that he died for all mankind as well. One or the other is an erroneous deduction which men have drawn from them. Third, seeing they explicitly teach the former, then there must be some honest and legitimate way of inter interpreting those passages which may, at first glance, seem to teach the latter. Now, the Word of God does not yield up its meaning to lazy people. Salvation is free, but truth has to be bought, Proverbs 23:23. Yet few indeed are willing to pay its stipulated price. Not only do the Scriptures have to be searched, John 5:39, and searched daily, Acts 17:11. Not only does passage have to be carefully compared with passage, 1 Corinthians 2.13, not only must all this be done in meekness, Psalm 25.9, and complete dependency upon God, Proverbs 3.6, but there must be a fervent crying after knowledge and importune lifting up of the voice of understanding and seeking her as silver, parenthesis, which entails hard labor and diligent perseverance, parenthesis. Yea, a searching for her as for a hid treasure, Proverbs 2, 1 through 5. It is at the above point that so many have failed. The meaning of God's word cannot be ascertained as easily as can that of a newspaper article, nor can any enter into the mystery of the gospel, Ephesians six nineteen, as readily as one may solve a problem in mathematics. If a person approaches holy writ with prejudice, his mind is closed against his teaching. If he regards any passage as plain and simple and is satisfied that he already understands it, he is not likely to cry unto God for or receive light from it. If he assumes that he is now in possession of practically all that the Bible teaches on the subject, parenthesis contrary to 1 Corinthians 8.2, or blindly follows some man unto whom he credits the same thing, then God will take the wise in their own craftiness, 1 Corinthians 3.19, and suffer them to remain in darkness. It is because of this that so many are misled by the mere sound of certain words. Our last statement has received many solemn illustrations. Take the controversy which has been waged in certain quarters as to whether or not man remains in a state of consciousness after he passes out of this world. How many who deny that he does so have appealed to such passages as the dead praise not the Lord, Psalm 115, 17, 
The dead know not anything, Ecclesiastes 9.5. But the matter cannot be settled so easily. Those passages must be studied in the light of their context, the dispensation under which they were given, and the interpreted, then interpreted in harmony with other passages of a different but not conflicting nature. Take again the great controversy between the Reformers on transubstantiation. How easy it is to be deceived by the mere sound of those words. This is my body. The same principle applies to our present subject. This issue cannot be settled by an appeal to such words as God so loved the world and Christ died for all, 2 Corinthians 5.15. Such expressions need to be studied and interpreted in keeping with the analogy of faith. Incalculable damage has been wrought by unequipped men understanding to preach the simple question mark, gospel and expound the Holy Scripture. There has been a zeal which has, was not proportioned with spiritual knowledge. Men with the merest smattering of Scripture considered themselves qualified to pass judgment on the teachings and writings of those who have devoted the lifetime to the continuous and concentrated study of God's Word. To a multitude of evangelists and preachers of today we would say, Oh, that ye would altogether hold your peace, and it should be your wisdom. Job 13.5 Rightly, it has been said, modern theology is largely based upon sound rather than the sense of Scripture. And it is an everyday practice for men to expound text who cannot even quote, much less expound the context, J.M. Sanger. Not a novice, 1 Timothy 3.6, has been deliberately ignored, and be not many of you teachers, James 3.1, Revised Version, has been definitely disobeyed. When men say that God has provided an atonement which is designed for all mankind, they need to be asked, Do you mean that Christ's sacrifice procured for all sinners that quickening grace of the Holy Spirit, which is indispensably needed to bring men to a cordial and saving reception of the atonement? Do you mean that an atonement has been made by Christ so as to infallibly secure that all shall be saved by it? If so, be honest and declare yourself a universalist. But if you do not mean this, then cease using empty words which you can only deceive souls and dishonor Christ. The real issue is not so much upon the scope of the atonement as it is upon the efficacy of it. Let us now briefly set forth that position which is popularly maintained in these degenerate times. We are told that there is such a fullness in the atonement that the value of Christ's sacrifice is sufficient for the salvation of the entire race were all men to believe in him. But this means that the sufficiency of the atonement is a conditional one, conditional upon the whole world believing. But that condition is not so easily performed. Almost all preachers today speak of faith in Christ as a comparatively easy manner, but the Scripture teaches quite otherwise. See Matthew 19, 25, 26, and John 5, 44, 6, 44, Ephesians 1, 19, 1 Peter 4, 18. The Word of God represents the fallen children of Adam as being spiritually bound with chains, shut up in death, securely held in prison, so that nothing short of a miracle of grace, the putting forth of divine omnipotence, can free them. In his masterly treatise on particular redemption, W. Rushton, 1831, illustrated this conditional sufficiency of the atonement thus. A wealthy and philanthropic individual visits Algiers and approaches a dungeon in which a wretched captive lays bound with chains and fetters and strongly secured within walls and doors and bars. He proclaims aloud to the, the captive that he has bought gold sufficient for a ransom on condition that the captive will liberate himself from his chains, burst open his prison doors, and come forth. Alas, claims the wretched man, your kindness does not reach my case. 
Unless your gold can affect my deliverance, it can be of no service to me. To offer it on such terms can do me no good. Now man by nature is spiritually as unable to believe in Christ as the Algerian captive is physically unable to break his chains in the prison doors, so that all his all this boasted sufficiency of the atonement is only an empty offer of salvation on certain terms and conditions, and such an atonement would be much too weak to meet the desperate case of a lost sinner. But how different is the salvation of God? By the blood of thy covenant I have sent forth thy prisoner out of the pit wherein is no water, Zechariah 9.11. The Lord Jesus by his death hath paid the ransom and made the captive his own. Therefore he has a legal right to their persons, and with his own right arm he brings them forth. It is his glory to bring out the prisoner from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house, Isaiah 42.6.7. Yes, Scripture affirms that he sent, parenthesis, not offered, redemption unto his people, Psalms 111.9. Turning now to the principal passages to which holders of this view appeal, let us begin with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and so forth. To a superficial mind, this declaration appears to settle the controversy once and for all. We do not use that term superficial in any invidious sense, but common honesty will not allow us to substitute another for it. Anyone who has examined a concordance and looked up the passage where a world concurs soon discovers that this world is used in the New Testament in quite a number of ways and with widely different latitudes, so that nothing can be determined for certain by the concurrence of the term in John 3.16. Sometimes the world signifies the unbelieving as in John 15.8. In others it includes none but believers as in Romans 11.12. Sometimes the world denotes a material system created by Christ John 1.10, and others it is appealed to a mere handful of people, as in John 7.4 and 12.19. In a great majority of instances, it is a general and indefinite expression which has reference to the Gentiles in contradistinction from Israel after the flesh. Now, it is a fundamental and unvarying rule of interpretation that both definite and indefinite phrases or terms must be understood and defined in strict accordance with the subject about which they are employed. So it is with John 3.16. The subject of that verse is the love of God to which the indefinite expression world and whosoever are joined. Therefore, if we would discover to a certainty who are the objects of God's love, we would have to diligently compare and examine other passages where the love of God is mentioned. Then we learn that his love is eternal. Jeremiah 31.3, Ephesians 1.4 and 5, that it is uninfluenced, nothing in its object calls it into exercise, prompts or attracts it, Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8. It proceeds simply from a spontaneous will of God. It is immutable or unchanging, Song of Solomon's 8, 6 and 7. Those whom God loves, he loves forever, John 13, 1. Nothing can ever separate from it. Nothing can ever cause God to cease loving those on whom he set his love, Romans 8, 35, 38. It is sovereign, Romans 9.13. There is no more cause in Jacob why he should be the object of the divine love than there was in Esau. The love of God is known by its manifested effects. There is an infallible connection as there is between cause and effect, between the love of God and his ordination of its objects to life and salvation. Hence we read, 
We are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. So also those whom God loves he regenerates. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God, 1 John 3.1. Making them sons is a certain effect of his having loved them from all eternity. Those whom God loved he draws to himself, Jeremiah 31.3. Those whom God loves, he chastens, parenthesis, disciplines, so that they become actual, quote, partakers of his holiness, unquote, Hebrews 12, 6 and 10. It therefore follows that those who are not made his sons, who are not made partakers of his holiness, were never the objects of his love. The same love of God, which was the cause of sending Christ to die for the salvation of his people, is also the same cause which freely gives all things with Christ, Romans 8.32, that is, the spirit to regenerate, faith to receive him, love to be devoted to him, compare 2 Peter 1.3. Were it otherwise, God's love would be incomplete, inadequate, deficient, unefficacious. God's love for me would be vain if it did not actually save me, deliver me, and win my heart to him. John 3.16 simply states that design of God's love, that is, that all who believe in Christ should be saved by him, which believers in their unbelieving state are found scattered abroad, John 11.52, throughout the earth, among the Gentiles as well as the Jews. A popular interpretation of John 3.16 is repudiated by all the facts of history. First, take the history of the human race before Christ was born. Unnumbered millions lived and died without God and without hope, Psalm 9.17. If God loved them, where is the least evidence of it? He suffered all nations to walk in their own ways, Acts 14.16. He gave them over to a reprobate mind, Romans 1.28. He announced to Israel, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, Amos 3.2. Second, take the history of the race since Christ was born. Remember the dark ages which lasted not for a few days, but for a thousand years when the papacy dominated almost all Christendom and the Bible was withheld from the peoples? And since the Great Reformation, what untold millions have died in heathendom without ever hearing of Christ? It would be inexplicably strange if God should love multitudes to whom he never so much as signified his love, leaving them in entire ignorance of the Son of his love. Third, take the coming day of judgment. To whom will God's love then be exercised? To sum up our comments on John 3.16, we understand the world here to mean men of all nations with an especial reference to the Gentiles, whom Nicodemus, parenthesis, as all Jews, considered to be accursed. To those who rejected this explanation and say, we keep by the plain declaration God so loved the world, we ask them to apply the same principle to the following passages. On the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 10.45. God also, to the Gentiles, generated repentance unto life, Acts 11.18. Declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, Acts 15.3. Is that expression... The Gentiles in these passages are general or an indefinite one or a universal and specific one. Is it a relative or absolute one? That is, does it take in all or refer only to some? Acts 15.44 answers the question. God has visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. The last clause of Second Peter 3.9 is frequently quoted 
but without any attention being given to the first part of it. Is that honest? The any whom the Lord is not willing should perish is clearly defined. The first stage shows that it is God's beloved who are here addressed and referred to. The promise which he is not slack in fulfilling has reference to the return of Christ. Verse 4, what scoffers, verse 3, suppose will never be fulfilled. The great reason why God has not yet sent back his son is because the last of his elect have not been regenerated. All of them shall come to repentance before human history can be wound up in verse 10 fulfilled. Thus the any looks back to the usward in the previous part of the verse. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world, John 1.29. John the Baptist was the herald of a new dispensation. One of the leading distinctions between the Old and New Testament dispensations was with regard to its scope. The former was greatly restricted, being for 2,000 years almost exclusively confined to a single nation, and to that limitation the members of the church had become thoroughly accustomed. But the new dispensation possessed an opposite character. At the cross, the middle wall of partition by which the Jews were kept separate from all other nations was broken down so that henceforth there should be no difference between Jew and Gentile, bond and free. But the previous regime had given rise to a deeply seated prejudice in favor of an exclusive privilege which it was no easy matter to uproot. Although the Savior had manifested a regard for a Roman centurion, a woman of Samaria, and had even plainly declared other sheep I have which are not of this fold, John 10:16. Still, the exclusive sentiment retained a firm hold even upon the minds of his disciples. They were Jews and were manifestly reluctant to descend to a common level with others in regard to the enjoyment of religious privilege. Clear proof of this is seen in the case of Peter, Acts 10.14. God had to work a miracle before he was willing to preach the gospel to Cornelius. The jealous antipathy of the Jews comes out even more noticeably in 1 Thessalonians 2.15-16. This one consideration accounts for and throws much light upon the use of the terms of an extensive import when speaking of the new economy. To mark the contrast from Judaism, the strongest language that could be used became necessary, hence the employment of the world and all men to denote in a general without regard to national distinctions. From what has been said above, it is not to be surmised that the Holy Spirit moved men to employ language which was not strictly true or accurate. Far from it, nothing is more common either in the writings of men or in the world of God than to use a general designation when it is intended to express a general principle, but which does not include every individual comprehended in the general designation employed. When we read that a certain city is smitten with smallpox epidemic, no one concludes that every individual in it has contracted that disease. So when we read in Exodus 9:6 that all the cattle of Egypt died, we must not take those words absolutely, as Exodus 9:9-19-25 plainly show. A critical examination of the terms in John 1:29 obliges us to take into account the undeniable fact that a very considerable portion of the human race was already in hell when the Son of God became incarnate. This one consideration is sufficient to show that we are compelled to understand that the world here is far less extensive in its scope than the whole human family. Again, that Christ did not take away the sin of, bear the guilt of, or suffer for the iniquities of all alive on earth in his own day is abundantly clear from his own words to the Pharisees. Ye shall die in your sins. John 8:24 and C 9:41. The best commentary on John 1:29 is the song of the redeemed. Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. 
Revelation 5, 9. Who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, 1 Timothy 2, 6. What has been said above concerning the signification of the term world when used in connection with the objects of God's love or the subjects of Christ's redemption applies with equal force and pertinency to the word all. That Christ gave himself a ransom for all without distinction of nationality, social status, age, sex is blessedly true, but to say that he died in the stead of all without exception cannot be maintained without involving the most powerful absurdities and contradictions. Nor is there anything elsewhere in the scripture which obliges us to give to all in this and similar verses an absolute and unlimited meaning. The word all is employed in scripture with considerable latitude and variety of meaning. Very rarely indeed is it used without limitation. Mark 1.5 says that all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem were all baptized of John, yet Luke 7.30 shows that the Pharisees and lawyers were not baptized of him. When the Savior told his disciples that ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, Matthew 10.22, it is obvious that those who believed on him must be excluded. When we read that all men came unto Christ, John 3.26, we can only understand that many of the Jews attended upon his ministry. When Christ declared he would draw all unto himself, John 12.32, he had in mind the all that the Father had giveth me of John 6.37. So here in 1 Timothy 2.6, the ransom for all is defined by the ransom for many of Matthew 20.28. 20, the all of 1 Timothy 2.4 and 6 is simply emphasizing the contrast from the Jewish nation only. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves 
would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.